listening to St. Pius X Catholic Church in Lafayette, Louisiana. Thank you for joining us. It's certainly uh, good to be back at the 9 a.m. Mass. I think this is the first time I've come to this Mass since the surgery. Um, kind of stayed away from the earlier morning Masses. Uh, a little slow in the morning sometimes. So my goal was to get to all of them. I did the 7.30 this morning, and so now I uh, get to do the 9, and the circuit is complete. I've done all the Masses at least once since the surgery. And I want to thank everybody who's uh, helped me so much. It's been very humbling uh, to uh, know of the great love that has been shown, uh, particularly among uh, Father Poirier, our deacons, our staff, uh, and, uh, and all of you, and all of you. Uh, the meal train is running to Father Brady's house, and it's helping him to eat a little better. Uh, I've not been tempted by the heavenly hash, like I mentioned to you guys last year, that's been on sale at Walgreens, I know, because I can't get to Walgreens, so I don't have to worry about falling into it. But you know, we lighten up this weekend. We have a little bit of fun, in a sense. You know, we have St. Joseph's altar and his holiday and his feast day tomorrow. Uh, and we kind of take a little break. We'll call it a quasi-break as we get to halftime during Lent to maybe take a glimpse of where we are going and why and how we can have a truly good Easter. The next two weeks are going to be dark. When I say dark, I just mean we're going to focus on Christ's passion and his death before we get to his resurrection. So beginning next Sunday, it's what's called Passion Time. And that's where our focus is going to be. But before we go in, before we go in, we get to try to see the glimpse of light that is to come at Easter. And if you think about it, this helps make the transfiguration make all the more sense that before Jesus was to go through his passion and death, he brought the apostles with him to the top of the hill, right? was transfigured before them. He wanted them to see what it would be like afterwards so that they didn't get too discouraged beforehand. And so now we're dealing with a month into Lent. Hopefully we have, you know, had prayer, almsgiving, fasting, but really most importantly, and even more so than the disciplines, a rigorous self-examination a rigorous self-examination to look at ourselves and to see ourselves as God sees us, as sinners in need of his mercy. That's our basic. And so in many ways, when we fail in our Lenten penances, it can be used for goodness. And when we succeed, it can be used for goodness. One, giving glory to God for the change that he's made in us. The other, recognizing the great love that he has for us despite the fact that we are sinners. And so we think of our readings today and how they bring these things to light. In our first reading, we need a little background. Samuel is a prophet priest. So initially, as you might recall, people asked for a structure from God to help them. The Israelites did. And so he gave them the judges and, you know, the book of judges, the era of judges. And the judges were fine in many ways, but the judges weren't warriors. And so the Israelites were being pummeled on each side. They would have to constantly go to battle, but without a king. So without a king in battle, they oftentimes would be lose. They were persecuted, they were oppressed, they were hassled. And so they cried out to the Lord for a king. Give us a king, we need this to survive. So in our first reading, we see the prefiguring of God giving them what they need in his mercy. A king, King David. 
Saul was the first king. Saul didn't do what God asked, lost favor with God. And this is God raising up a king. Who is surprising, huh? You can tell that as Samuel goes, he says, I'm, I'm going to Jesse in Bethlehem. By the way, another thought of prophecy being fulfilled, he went to Bethlehem for the king. And so Samuel's there and, and he sees Jesse's sons and one walks in, he goes, ah, that's the guy. Goes, no, 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 that's not him. You're looking at appearances. God looks into the heart. That's another whole homily by itself, by the way. But God saw in David what he wanted. So he goes through all of his sons and he says that he that thought would be a candidate. Nobody thought David would. He was young. He was a kid. He was ruddy. That means like a red faced, you know. And God picks David, the youngest of them, to be the king. And we all know the story of David moves on to where he takes on Goliath, the Philistines, one of those uh, groups that was hassling the Israelites. And David becomes a great king and he had his ups and his downs. But it's a prefiguring of God's mercy and the coming of our King Christ. And in understanding that, that God doesn't work the way we work. God sees it all. God knows where we are. God knows where everybody else is. Next week I mentioned that there are no secrets from God in our sinfulness or in our goodness. He knows it all. Whether we believe it or not, we can't hide anything from Him. So He gives us what we need, and we move to our Gospel reading today, and yes, I am very much aware that there was a short version. Everybody's like, when they hear the first line, it's like this collective sigh. Oh. We wanted to hear the full version because there is so much in here about us and what we're hoping will occur for us at Easter. So we think of the blind man. He's blind. Why is he blind? Those, that's the first question. Why is he blind? Everybody thinks it's because he's a sinner or his parents are. The Old Testament covenant with God was that if you suffered, it was because you sinned. And if you did good, then you would be blessed. It's the covenant of blessing and curse. Started with Moses. And so they would just presume that, hey, this guy's a sinner. We feel sorry for him that you're blind, but you're a sinner. So they'd give him alms maybe, but as they walked away, they would be like under their breath saying, I wonder what he did wrong, you know? What happened to him? So the blind man is considered an outcast, a sinner, to some extent dirty. You don't really want to be around it because they would believe that it would rub off on you. And Jesus comes along and heals him on a Sabbath. Everybody wants to know, how is this happening? And we see a couple of things here. The first is the reaction of disbelief in what Jesus has done. But really, I think one of the big things we want to look at is the responses of the blind man all throughout. He takes instructions. He goes and washes the spittle on his uh, on his eyes, and he can see. And he comes back, and everyone's amazed. They don't even know if it's the same guy. Like, how did that happen? So his neighbors are questioning him, and how did this happen? And he says, "Hey, that man, that man, Jesus did these things." And so the Pharisees get interested. They want to know. They're kind of the policemen, so they bring him in and. 
He seems to be a little more bold. It's like, well, he's a sinner. He cures on the Sabbath. That can't be a good sign. And he goes, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I can tell you is he did what he did. He did that sign. And they said, well, who do you say he is? He's a prophet. So he goes from being that man to that prophet, meaning he was of God. So they go to the parents and the parents are like, I don't want anything to do with this because we know that if anybody becomes a disciple of Jesus, that we're going to get thrown out of the synagogue. So they said, ask him yourself. Don't ask us. Don't put us in the middle of it. All we can tell you is, yeah, he was blind. Now I can see, but we don't know what happened. So they didn't want to put themselves out in order to risk being cut off from the synagogue because that really was, in that day, I'm going to say it's a death penalty of sorts. You would become a social outcast, a religious outcast. You would lose pretty much everything that you lived for as an Israelite. So they said, go talk to him yourself. So they go back again. And boy, is that blind man now cured really, really spunky. Because they're saying all of these things about him, and he goes, just gives him a theological discourse, basically. Basically saying, I can see, he's good. And then they go through the process, well, you're his disciple, so you're out. So they cut this guy out of the synagogue. But he calls him at the end, when Jesus comes and finds him. It's kind of an important thing, too. When he felt like he was out, Jesus comes and finds him. And then he asks him a few more questions, but in the end, what he says is, you know, you are Lord. You are God. And then he worshiped him. By the way, that's the only place in the New Testament that anybody worships Jesus before his resurrection. This is the blind man. But look how the blind man changes from that man Jesus to that prophet Jesus to Lord and God, or Son of Man. He calls him that too. Son of Man is a euphemism in the Old Testament for God. That's the journey that we want to make during Lent. Precisely. That is, we understand, and mentioned this last weekend, just about our fallen nature, that our fallen nature dims our intellect. It blurs our vision. It weakens our will. We are sinners in need of God's mercy. We are not capable of knowing what is truly good all the way through. And Christ comes to open our eyes. And hopefully we come to see Christ more clearly. And so during Lent, the hope is with that rigorous examination of self, looking at our sins and connecting with God with our will, that we are able to accept his grace and we are able to change, to amend our lives, to understand how much God loves us even though we are still yet sinners. His willingness to come to us, to help us, to heal us, to give us vision, to give us clarity, to give us true vision that makes us happy. That's all God wants us to do. That's his predisposition. And so as we move forward, we think of, okay, during Lent, we've had this rigorous self-examination, and I hope, I hope for all of us it is humbling. It's supposed to be. We approach God with a humble and contrite heart. We need the help because we are helpless without it. And so we allow him to heal us and to let us see better. And as we look at that rigorous self-examination, obviously many of you, so many of you, you know, come to sacramental confession to receive not only the grace of forgiveness, but the grace of amendment. 
And that's what a true happy Easter is. Sure, on Easter, I may have some heavenly hash. Y'all know what that is. It's really good. Like marshmallow and chocolate and nuts. Great. My weak spot. I'll have that, but not because I'm celebrating me or celebrating Easter in some nebulous way, I hope. The hope is that all of us in that examination and in that grace that God wants to give us will then be able to point to an amendment of life, a change in our life, to sing a new song to the Lord, to have a deeper understanding of God's love for us, to have a little bounce in our step because we're better because of Him. And when we see the passion as we move through the two weeks called Passion Todd, when we see that, we don't see the tragedy. We don't feel the guilt of our sins. What we see is the love of God. We see the love of Christ. And yes, that can bring tears to our eyes. But it's because he loves us despite the fact that we are sinners, even though we don't deserve it, just because. But we, on our end, have to do our part. And we hope that as we move forward in these next two weeks, yes, we'll see the horror of the cross. We'll see what our sins have caused. But in that, then we can know God. We cannot know the depths of God's love unless we know the depths of our sins. Repeat that again. We cannot know the depths of God's love for us until we know the depths of our sins. Why is that? Well, think of the, think of the sinful woman. Jesus said it himself. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. So if we never get to the point where we're worried about being forgiven, what's the big deal about God? We see the depths of our sin, the love that he had for us in bringing us out, and then we are able in gratitude to imitate him as opposed to in grumbling think that we're being oppressed. And in that way, and in that way, Easter can be truly happy. We'll be making all sorts of preparations in the next few weeks. But the greatest thing of all that we need to prepare for, we hope, is the coming of a new grace, a new life, a better life in Christ. And if we can point to a little Easter this year, then we can be moving further along to the big Easter when God does finally call us home. We're able to then hopefully live with a little bounce in our step, knowing how much God loves us, but not ever wanting to backslide into what we were before giving him glory because of his love and because of the grace of amendment. So let's pray that as we enter into these next few weeks, let's look at what Christ has done for us. Let's make sure that we prepare ourselves with that honest self-examination, pray for the ability to be better, to be rid of our sins, our faults, our weaknesses, our wounds, whatever may be holding us back from knowing and loving him more. And let's be able to point at Easter and throughout the entire season of the great love that he has for us, changing our lives, converting, and being able to see him more clearly and to follow him more closely going forward.